it is great to be here. If you don't know me, if you're online or if you're here, you don't know me, my name is Chase Campbell. I am the pastor to college students and young adults here at Wallace. When I was a little kid, my favorite cartoon in the world was Scooby-Doo. Now, for the very few of you who aren't familiar with Scooby-Doo, it is a cartoon television show about a group of people and their very large talking dog, and they drive around and they solve mysteries. They always get caught up in some local ordeal where a supposed ghost or a monster is terrorizing some town. Now, it's full of witty comedy, and it's full of funny dialogue, and lots and lots of sandwiches. But at its heart, Scooby-Doo is a detective story, much like Sherlock Holmes or an Agatha Christie novel. They have to follow the evidence, and in the end, they end up unmasking some mysterious figure, and they learn who was behind it the whole time. This was a very formative experience for me as a young child. It changed the way that I read books, that I watch movies, that I watch television, because I learned that if you pay attention in the beginning to the details and to the minor characters, they will give you everything you need to figure out the mystery. Well, today in Hebrews chapter 7, we are also going to meet a mysterious figure from the Old Testament. This is not Scooby-Doo, so it is not a monster, and he is not terrorizing anyone. What I am going to suggest, though, is that we need to use those same cartoon detective skills. We need to go back to the beginning, and we need to pay attention to the minor characters and the minor details. And if we do that, if we use good Bible study skills, then we can learn what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. And maybe, just maybe, we can get some life-changing information. To start this process, we need to go directly to the text. So let's open up to Hebrews chapter 7. If you would go ahead and stand with me as I read these first few verses. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. You can be seated. Uh, you may be asking yourself, we're doing all of chapter 7, right? Why did he stop there? Well, we have a whole lot of text to cover, and I actually want to break it up into smaller sections, and I want to answer some questions about each section. There's four questions that I want us to answer today. Number one, who is Melchizedek? Number two, why did this matter to a first century Jewish audience? Number three, why would it matter to a 21st century American audience? And number four, how does Melchizedek fit in the overall story of the Bible? So let's answer that first question. Who is Melchizedek? And I know when I say that name, you're like, yeah, who? I have never heard of this guy. I know Jesus, and I know Moses. 
I know Peter and David and John. I know there's an Elijah and an Elisha, but I'm really not sure which is which. Anyway, I don't know Melchizedek. The Bible has too many characters. Well, it's really easy to miss him because Melchizedek only appears three times in the entire Bible. And to understand his importance, we actually have to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way to Genesis 14 and find out when he first appears. Now, there's two ways I could do this. One, I could pick that up and I could just read all of Genesis 14 to you. But I'm going to do this the way these stories were passed down for thousands of years. I'm going to tell you the story. And I'm going to highlight some important details. And I'm going to sum it up a little. You ready? All right, so in Genesis 14, Abraham and his nephew Lot and their entourage have recently gotten to the land that God gave them, and they are setting up camp in the general vicinity of civilization. They are just there minding their own business. But at this time in history, it was very common for cities, local cities, to go to war with each other. The loser of the war, whatever king there, would have to pay tax to the winning king permanently. And that's happened several times, and there's four kings who have been paying this permanent tax to these five kings. But the four kings are tired of paying the tax, and so they rebel. And there's a war, and there's sieges on cities, and there's raids. And before long, everyone is just running around, plundering everything like a raging mob of land pirates. Abraham's nephew, Lot, actually gets caught up in one of these raids, and he is taken prisoner. He's taken with these kings and their war. And Abraham says, uh-oh, I have to go rescue my nephew Lot. So he gets up a posse. He gets up 318 guys, and they set out to go rescue his nephew Lot. And when Abraham catches up with this massive army with just his 318 guys, the victory is decisive. Like, he destroys them. And it's not because Abraham's a great general. It's because God is with Abraham and not these land pirates in their tax war. So all of Abraham's people get their stuff back, and Lot is rescued. At that point, seemingly out of nowhere, a new king that wasn't one of these original nine kings shows up. He walks out with a feast of bread and wine. And this is where we meet Melchizedek. Now, Genesis gives us two very important details about who Melchizedek is and how he operates. Number one, Melchizedek is a priest. He is a priest of God Most High. That's the real God, the true God, the God that Abraham is worshiping. And that's why he's come to greet Abraham. He's not just there to celebrate a victory. He sees that God has performed a miracle. And he is there to join Abraham in praising God. So what he does is he sees Abraham and he realizes, oh, not only has God won a victory... But God has a special blessing on this man, Abraham. So acting as a priest, acting as God's representative, Melchizedek conveys this blessing, recognizing what God is doing in Abraham. So Melchizedek is acting as a priest. Number two, and this is really important, this is huge, Melchizedek is a king. He is king of Salem. Now, ancient Salem is what you and I know as modern-day Jerusalem. So this means 
that there are people living in Jerusalem with a king and a priest worshiping God two generations before the guy named Israel is even born. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we look at God's relationship with Israel and we think that they got an exclusive deal, that they were the only ones who got to worship God. But Melchizedek reminds us that everyone, everywhere in all of history is accountable for worshiping God. We don't know who his people were, we don't know how he got there, but he reminds us that God's work did not begin with Judaism. Judaism was designed as a system to show us who Jesus was going to be, but he predates the temple and the Ten Commandments and the laws and everything that comes with them. Abraham recognizes Melchizedek as a king and a priest, and he is so overwhelmed by this blessing that Abraham gives him an incredible and generous gift. He takes 10%, a full 10% of all the loot that he just won off these guys, and he gives it to Melchizedek. He pays him a tithe, recognizing his place as priest and as king. And then Melchizedek goes away, and we don't hear about him for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Bible follows the story of Abraham. So there's our answer. That's what we find in Genesis 14, that Melchizedek is a king, and he is a priest, and he predates Judaism. You're saying, okay, that's interesting, but that's Genesis. Aren't we in Hebrews? Well, that brings us to our next question. Why would Melchizedek be so important to a first century Jewish audience? Because that's who the author of Hebrews is talking to. He's talking to a group of people who are considering leaving, Judea, leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. So let's look back in the text and figure out what he's going to say to them. Uh, you can remain seated for this one because this is a long passage. Now, consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi receive the priestly office, and they have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. For one of these things are spoken about, and they belong to a different tribe. No one from it has ever served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever 
according to the order of Melchizedek. That was a lot of text. And this is the point where we can get really lost if we don't stop and connect the dots. For the past few weeks, we've been going through Hebrews and we've been learning about why Jesus is better. Jesus is a better prophet than Moses. Jesus is a better messenger than angels. Jesus, most importantly to this text, is a better and more qualified high priest. And you read that, and I read that, and we're like, well, duh, he's Jesus. He's a better and more qualified everything. But to a first century Jew who has spent their entire life in the Old Testament sacrificial system, they've got a major problem with this. Only people from the tribe of Levi were qualified to be priests. And if you wanted to be the high priest, you had to prove that you are a direct descendant of Aaron. It's not like today. You send a pastor off to seminary and they get a degree and they get a small job and then they're qualified based on their degree and their experience. Old Testament priests were qualified exclusively through their biological ancestral heritage. So a first century Jew sees this and they are shouting out their objection like a lawyer in a courtroom. Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from Judah. So according to Old Testament custom, based on their laws, Jesus was very qualified to be a king. But not a priest. And you don't get to do both. The Bible is super strict about that. that that's just not a good thing to mix. Like you don't want a little league dad also being the referee. Right? You can't be a king and a priest. This is way out of bounds. This is actually why Saul was removed from the royal line. He was waiting on a battle. He was supposed to offer something to God, but he had to wait on Samuel because Samuel was the priest. He decided, you know what? Samuel's taking too long. So he acted as a priest and made the offering himself, and God said, that's it. You and your people, you can't be kings anymore because you have rejected my system. So a Jewish audience is going, you can't be a king and a priest, Jesus is from Judah, not from Levi, the game is over, this system doesn't work, we're going back to Judaism, checkmate. That is why the author of Hebrews goes into painstaking detail in this section about how Abraham related to Melchizedek and how Levi and Aaron related to Abraham. This whole middle part of chapter 7 shows that Abraham recognized Melchizedek as both priest and king, legitimizing him in this system and showing because of that 10% that Melchizedek was his superior in this system of how they related to God. And so the argument is that because Levi and because Aaron are descended from Abraham, they too have to recognize Melchizedek as superior. So why is Jesus qualified to be both a king and a high priest? Because he's not part of the Jewish system. The Jewish system was designed to point to Jesus so that we would know who he is. 
Verse 17 tells us that Jesus is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And this system supersedes anything in Judaism. He doesn't need to be descended from Aaron or Levi because he is part of something completely different. We don't know who Melchizedek's ancestors were. We don't know where his descendants went. And it doesn't matter. His name is King of Righteousness. He's not qualified based on his lineage. He is qualified because of his righteous relationship with God. Melchizedek and Jesus are part of a system that is better in every way. This would be like if you were in a room with six guys and they were arguing about who's the best player in their basketball league. Perhaps they could come up with an argument. They could compare data, their height, their wins, their shooting percentages, their championships. And maybe, just maybe, one of them could come up with an argument that they were the best rec league basketball player. But if Michael Jordan walks in the room, the conversation is over. You don't get to compare yourself to the greatest and most iconic basketball player of all time in the most competitive league of all time, in the most competitive era of all time. He wins by virtue, and he wins by category. He's not participating in your sweaty YMCA recreation league. It's the same way with Jesus and the priesthood. Maybe under Jewish law... Jesus didn't have the qualifications to be priest, but he's not participating in Jewish law. He's completing it. He's playing in a completely different league. The purpose of Judaism was to remind us that Jesus was on his way. He's here now. So the time of relating to God through priests and through temples and through sacrifices is over because we have something better now a Jewish audience has heard this and they have had their minds blown they thought they had an ironclad argument and the game was over but the author of Hebrews says no 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 you need to go back to the beginning and you need to pay attention to the details every week pastor John gives us an action step this is what you're supposed to do with the information you learn in the sermon. And this is where I want to give you your action step. Replace your system. That's what this author is telling the, the Jewish audience. Replace your system. Don't return to Judaism. Replace it with Christianity. Replace your system of sacrifices because Jesus is better Replace your system of priests because Jesus is better. Replace your system of family trees and lineage because Jesus is better. Replace your system of tradition that just makes you feel comfortable because Jesus is here to set you free. All right, before I get wound up, let's recap. Who is Melchizedek? He's a priest and a king who predates Judaism. Why is he so important to a first century Jewish audience? Because he shows them something about a superior system of relating to God where Jesus is qualified to be their king and their high priest. 
Now, you might be sitting there going, uh, okay, let's answer that next question. What does he have to do with a 21st century audience? Because you've got some objections just like this Jewish audience did. You're like, uh, I'm an American. We don't have kings. We told them to pack up their tea and go home. And I don't think I've ever met a priest, but if I met a priest, I probably wouldn't care who his family was. So is this all just an exercise in ancient history? Why does it matter to us? Well, let's keep reading in Hebrews. You can get some more information about that. We're going to be in verse 18, chapter 7. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. For the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath, but he became priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But he remains forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son which has been perfected forever. This section starts, tell, starts out by telling us that we are moving on from the old system because there is a better way. There is a way in which that we draw near to God. So it makes an equation for us. And I think that we are really good at about half of that equation. We've gotten rid of the old system, but man, do we ever struggle with drawing near to God. And we have to understand priesthood to get where we went wrong. Now, most of us in this room, we grew up with pastors and not priests. I've actually met people who don't even know the difference between the words. A pastor is someone who guides and equips you. It is my job to give you tools to understand your Bible and to share your faith. A priest acts as an intermediary between you and God. They act as God to the people and as the people to God. They're a go-between. That's why people who practice Catholicism, they have a priest tradition. They actually confess their sins to a priest or pray to a saint because they are looking for someone more qualified to plead their case on their behalf. The first century Jewish audience was acutely aware that the problem in their life and in the world was sin and guilt and separation from God. They lived in an everyday ritualistic reminder 
that that was the problem. They put their hand on an animal and they watched it get murdered knowing this is what's supposed to happen to me. This is what I deserved. They had that problem down to sin and guilt. The majority of our culture doesn't practice any form of priestly perdition. We've said that's an ancient way of thinking. So we reject the system but I think we've found that rejecting the system hasn't fixed the problem, has it? So we have other things that act as priests. What we use is this desperate cry and this desperate work for self-validation. Ancient cultures narrowed it down to a problem of sin and guilt. And we just know something is wrong and we want to fix it. So we're begging someone, anyone, something, anything, tell me this is going to be okay and fix this problem inside of me. We live in a world where we seek validation as a priest from places it was never meant to come from. And when that doesn't satisfy us, we end up blaming those faulty methods and the people we don't feel like we're enough, so we blame our parents for not giving us proper self-esteem. And then we decide, well, that didn't work, so I'm going to turn to college acceptance. I'm going to turn to good grades, to sports trophies, to plaques on the wall, to any kind of achievement. Something to tell me that I'm good enough, I've done enough, I've fixed the problem inside of me. And it never works there, does it? And we're Americans, and in our culture, I think it's pretty obvious that the one place that we turn to when we want to feel validated and fix that thing inside of us is we turn to the romantic relationship. We look to husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends, and we ask them to do something they were never created to do and they were never capable of doing. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer actually points out that the easiest place to see this, the best evidence in our culture, is in the lyrics of our pop music. <clears throat> your love, your love, your love is my drug. Kesha. She's saying, I can't live without you. It's a withdrawal. I need you to act as my priest. Uh, losing you is living in a world with no air. Jordan Sparks and Chris Brown. People begging the romantic relationship for validation. And you might be like me when you hear those lyrics. And you might think, man, the music these kids listen to is awful. I wish it was better like the music back in my day. Except this has always kind of been the same thing, right? Uh, Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away. That's Bill Withers. How about, you're my soul and my inspiration. You're all I've got to get me by. Without you, baby, what good am I? That's the Righteous Brothers. The lyrics change and the years go on, but the problem stays the same. We got rid of a system, but we didn't fix what was wrong inside of us. We have this void inside and is screaming out, someone, anyone, tell me I'm okay. Fix this problem inside of me. Fix this distance between me and God. I'm a good parent. I'm a good businessman. I'm a pillar of the community. I'm a good and proper person. Tell me I'm okay. We got rid of the priests, but we failed to draw near to God. 
replace the system. The traditions we use for comfort, the achievements we use for validation, and the people we unfairly ask to fix us, replace it. Replace it with Jesus. Because therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to intercede for them. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do. When we put our faith in Jesus, we don't have to seek validation anymore. He didn't have to, ac- to offer sacrifices every day. And we don't have to keep begging for someone to fix us every day. Replace the system of trying harder with a system of believing in Jesus. Because when he died, he earned the right to bridge that gap and to fix that distance between you and God. And because he was perfect and he defeated death, he did enough forever. So why is Melchizedek important to us? Because he shows us an example of how we relate to Jesus. Melchizedek walked out to meet Abraham to recognize that God had just won a victory. Jesus came to this world and came to us to be God's victory. Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek to recognize him as a priest. We give our entire lives to Jesus because that is exactly what he gave for us. So who is Melchizedek? He is a priest and he is a king. Why is he important to the first century reader? He shows us how Jesus is qualified as both priest and king. Why is he important to us today? He points us from the truth to the truth that we need a better system that we need to draw near to God but in closing I want to answer one last question because I know there's probably still a few skeptics out there if this is the first time you're hearing this you're saying okay you know history that's great you even know psychology look you're clever enough to link those together but isn't this just another creative answer Are you making this up right now? Let's read the last bit of these verses. We're to Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have the kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was led up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Since there are those offering gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. This has always been the answer. The question, what is Melchizedek's place in the Bible? He is there to point us to Jesus. He interacts with Abraham to show us a different type of priest and king. 
And then hundreds of years later, David makes a prophecy in a psalm that says that Jesus is going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then hundreds of years later, the author of Hebrews shows us how it all works together. At the end of Scooby-Doo, they would pull the mask off the monster and they would find out who's really behind it. When we study the Bible, this is how it works. You go back and you pull the mask off Melchizedek and you say, look, he was pointing us to Jesus. It's always been the answer. Take the mask off Moses, he was pointing us to Jesus. The mask off David, he was pointing us to Jesus. Off the temple, Jesus. The sacrifice, Jesus. Everything. The entire system is designed to point us to Jesus because he is a better promise and a better hope and a better covenant, so we need to replace our system with Jesus. How do I do that? I mean, it it seems like an easy statement, but it's a whole lifetime of finding all the places that we are flawed and our system is flawed, of recognizing in the Bible that everything is pointing us to Jesus. This is why we have to be in a D group. And let other people point those things out so we can find new places to replace our system. This is why our connect group goes alongside of us for our life. And helps us learn more in the Bible of how to replace our system every day. This is why we as a church, we're not a bunch of individuals. We're a group of people getting this better covenant and this better hope. So the question that I have for you today is are you going to replace your system? This may be the first time that you've heard this. If so, your first step of replacing your system is faith. You need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he lived perfect and that he died and was raised for you. Now, some of you may have believed this a long time ago and you're still operating on your own system, seeking out your own validation, saying, I need to prove that I'm good enough. We're gonna have leaders down at the front And if you need to deal with either of those things, if you want to talk to someone about replacing your system for the first time, or if you need to come down here by yourself and pray, if you need to pray at your seat with someone else, ask God to show you where you're still participating in a broken system. Ask God where you're not depending on him. Today is the day. Let's accept this invitation. Pray with me. God, thank you so much that you have come to earth and that you have given us a way to bridge that gap between all the problems in the world and what we know it's supposed to be in that relationship with you. God, thank you so much that you recorded all the history of the Bible so that we would know that Jesus was the plan from the beginning. God, we ask that you just stir in our hearts today and that you bring us to a place of repentance and acceptance and dependence on you. Thank you for who you are and what you do for us. Amen.